Hi, I'm Rajiv. And I'm Hope. This is the African Pre-Seed Podcast. As always, if you're a founder or investor keen on learning more about the African tech ecosystem, we've got you covered. In this episode, we trace the roots of Africa's communications revolution to learn how two game-changing technologies, mobile calling and the internet, have changed the lives of millions of people across sub-Saharan Africa. Joining us for this conversation is Russell Southwood, an author and analyst of African telecoms, internet and media. Russell is the author of a book recently published by the Manchester University Press titled Africa 2.0, Inside a Continent's Communications Revolution. Russell's book critically examines the impact these technologies have had on development practices and the role development actors have played in accelerating regulatory reform, fiber rollout, mobile and mobile money. Russell, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Well, congrats on your book, Russell. I think it was a fantastic read. Thank you for that. Now, in the 20-odd years that you've spent working in Africa's tech scene, you've no doubt seen a lot happen and not happen. I imagine there are many books you could have written to distill your observations and learnings over the years. So why this specific book and this specific topic? I think it was important to write a book that wasn't just about the arrival of mobiles and to look at the internet because I think in the long run, the internet is arguably the thing that will make the biggest difference in Africa. And if you think back to what Africa was like in the 1980s, and you look at what people have done with technology in Africa, you can actually see that this story is very important, not just as being about technology, but being about the fundamental change in what is happening in the continent. Today's conversation will focus on insights you distilled in Chapter 8 of your book, which delves into the startup scene in sub-Saharan Africa and how founders are going beyond the hype to address deep market challenges. But before we get into all of that, we're going to play a little game called Rate This. So, Russell, what we're going to do is we're going to name a few topics and we'll take turns rating these on a scale of 1 to 5. Is that simple enough? Yeah, in what what is one the highest? Let's go let's go one the lowest, five the highest. Okay. Okay, cool. So the first one is physical books. That's one for me. I'm going to go with a 3. Yeah, I think I would be like a 3. A good book. There's nothing like having a good bedside read physically. <laughs> so I think it is it would be a 3 for me. I should I should have said 5. Oh, you should have said 5. <laughs> Did we manage to convince you there? (laughs) (laughs) What about the metaverse? One. One. (laughs) I'm going to go with a four. What? Even with the stock price crash because of all the amounts of money they've been spending. Watch the space. Okay, we'll see. Um, Wireless phone charging. Three. I'm going to go with a one. Uh, Not that exciting too. (laughs) Let's go with fintech. Four. Five. I'm going to go with a five also. Yes, laying the rails for the continent. TikTok? Two. <laughs> I'll go for three. Okay, I guess we won't be getting any TikTok snippets from any of you soon. I think I'll go with a four. Fantastic. And let's go for a bonus. What about ride share services? I think four. Oh, wow. Uh, two? I'm going to go with Russell here. Four for me. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much for that, Russell. Now let's get into it. So, Russell, I think we have a lot to unpack. Your book is extremely comprehensive, but 
I'd like to start with the concept of time because I think this is something that's flowed throughout the book. And I think it's also a concept that's very underplayed. And what I mean by that is we often judge progress based on our most recent account of history, but we fail to contextualize progress or lack thereof against time. So, Russell, my question to you is, with the lens of time and the benefit of hindsight, what has been the most surprising about growth or lack of growth in this sector? In other words, have there been things that you've been have moved quicker than you would have thought or conversely, things that should have moved quicker that haven't? I think one of one of the strange things is always you imagine certain things like if prices come down uh number of users will get bigger and when the international cables arrived in 2008 2009 i certainly for one imagined that prices would come down particularly to to users much much faster than they did but there's a kind of mystery kind of four-year gap between the arrival of all that bandwidth, international bandwidth on the cables, and then prices coming down substantially enough for user numbers to start going up on t- in terms of the mobile internet. So that's a, that's a kind of negative one. I suppose the reverse is actually with the arrival of the internet, which is sort of the beginning of the uh, of, of proper the proper startup period in a way, though things happened before that, the speed with which people moved into starting to kind of imagine what it would be like to have a startup scene. That's slightly different. You know, so the the phrase Silicon Savannah, which was clearly an overpitch in many ways, in a sense allowed Africa to imagine itself being able to do certain things, which previously had sounded completely unimaginable. Got it. I understand. And just very quickly as a follow-up, in keeping with the concept of time, I, I often find myself looking at different business models presented by founders and I say, this is a really interesting model. However, it's just the wrong time in, in our cycle, whether that's from an economic or demographic standpoint. Is this something that you've, you've observed as you've looked at different business models in different parts of the continent? And, you know, how has that sort of played out from a timing perspective? I think if uh, the example I'll give is is with data centers. I was asked to look at the setting up of a data center in Lagos in 2005, and you could see that data centers would become big in Lagos. The question was a timing one entirely. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the reality was it wasn't until three years later that the first data center was set up. So, you know, there are kind of leads and lags. And I guess what you can see as an analyst is where the road leads, but it doesn't tell you very much about how fast you're traveling. And I think that's always going to be a difficulty. And I think one of the difficulties that people in Africa have, sometimes they're quite pessimistic about the speed of travel. And so the speed with which things like mobile money happened, I think it really took everybody by surprise. But having been very successful in Kenya after a period of time, it was much, much slower moving elsewhere. So I think if you're a founder of a startup, understand that actually a lot of what we're talking about is behavior change. And behavior change is not the same as technology change. I can introduce a technology Mm -hmm. tomorrow 
but actually for people to use it, it may take 10 years before it actually gets in, yeah. into everybody's hands and they're, and they're using it with confidence. Yeah, I think, Russell, what you highlight is quite an important point because definitely there's always some kind of lag time between sort of that behavioral change as you talk about and the actual technological change in the way that could potentially influence the, the human element of what founders are thinking of building. What would you say are some of the data points or anecdotes that founders could look to in terms of being able to time whether it's the right time from a behavioral perspective to kind of adopt a specific technology or introduce some kind of innovation into the market? And how does that sort of contrast between when certain components need to be offline versus bringing certain things online as well? I think the continent is very much a hybrid continent. If you look at something like Jumia, the majority of payments are still made on the doorstep, even though the orders are made online. So I think yeah. people need to worry about startups always talk in what I call future perfect. So they, they, they talk in a language which makes it sound as if something is happening now, when actually yeah. what they want to ha it to do is happen in the future. Now, the difficulty with that is actually, you're going to be in a position where the reality that's before you is not the same as the reality you want. And yeah. so it, with mobile money, there was quite a lot of experiential marketing. So people would go out into the marketplaces and have to explain to people. They could sign them up, but they weren't actually using it. They had to say, what is the practical value of this? And I yeah. think too much, too, too many startups are kind of in love with the, the kind of frictionless sort of middle-class version of technology and not as much focused as they should be on what people are telling them. You know, go out into, uh, go, go out amongst a group of users for, or yeah. potential users for your service and see how they react to it. You know, is it, is it absolutely uh, essential to them or is it something yeah. they go, yeah, that's okay. Yeah, so being on ground and getting that feedback from your users directly just helps you understand how people are incorporating that that behavioral change, right? Um, which is quite important and a lot of startups should be able to be cognizant of. And the other area that you also focus on, which really resonated with me, is the concept of that enabling infrastructure. So whether it's the telcos or the banking rails or internet or mobile phones, do you think there are enough people who are actually working on that enabling infrastructure or do more people tend to think about that sexy tech that overlays on top of that infrastructure? And then what role do you also think incumbents can play to be a lot more proactive in terms of working with these new digital innovators in order to kind of drive that collaboration between that infrastructure and sort of these, these new players? I think you've got two questions in there. The first of which is that, for example, if you're if you're running a, a fintech type service, you'll discover that there's a whole regulatory piece that you have to be involved yeah. with, and you have to sort out. And quite often, you're you're actually having to sell the idea of the change that you're making to a whole wide group of people. And so that means that not only are you trying to run a business, you're actually running a kind of, if you like, a policy campaign of some kind. So that's the first kind of difficulty. And it can be overcome, but it's, it's, it's quite hard going. And I, I, don't think, I don't think there are. I think there's, there's quite a lot of people in the policy space who know, who can use that phrase, enabling infrastructure, level playing field, all of those kinds of things. But actually, having somebody who is actually has got the kind of vertical knowledge so for example if you if you're setting up to do something in health you have to understand not just 
health as general issues, but health in terms of what the supply chain looks like, what the logistics look like, what the attitudes and understandings are of the potential users in that area. So it's having a very detailed understanding. And quite often, if you start out as a young guy just out of university and you've not worked in an industry, it's quite difficult for you to actually have that vertical knowledge. And yeah. I think I think in, in many ways, a lot of the startup scene is, is rather like putting a whole set of amateurs in for the Olympics. And unfortunately, you have to have more experience. You have to understand things by having done them. Great. Russell, chapter eight of your book, within the title, it's behind the hype. And that's a phrase that resonates quite a lot with us and, and the world that we, that we work in. The reason I mention that is you also mention in the chapter that the lines are often blurred between ambition and reality, and especially within a sub-Saharan African context where I think we are so used to needing to believe stories to remain hopeful. And I think this culture of storytelling has been well-developed on the continent, but when when it comes to founders and storytelling, I think there's there's sometimes an overextension. And I think the question to you would be wonderful to get your perspectives on that delta between storytelling narratives and reality. At what point does storytelling actually become counterproductive? I think it's kind of interesting because really what startups do is they're like salesmen who, or saleswomen who sell a story, an idea, a vision so, you know, when, when, when something's set up, you're having to persuade people. You're not unlike an architect saying, you know, to, in order to build this building, you know, see, see the height, see the, you know, see the, see the arches and so on and so forth. You don't talk too much about the foundations. And I think the difficulty with it is that everybody is selling. So the startups are selling to the investors. The investors are themselves selling to the the sources of funding, and quite often those sources of funding are selling to governments because that's where the money's coming from. So everybody is selling to everybody, and you don't want to turn around and say, ah, but you know what you've got to think about is X or Y. You want a good, solid, upbeat story. And there's a difference between that and actually being quite analytical and saying to yourself, well, actually, really, what's happening here? Where are we? So, for example, you know, kind of Jussi Hinkerman, who is quoted in the book, is a Finnish guy who's got a, a startup around jobs and careers called Fuzu. Uh, he makes the comparison between Kenya and Finland. And Kenya is a country in which there are something like 2,000 jobs on offer every month in terms of a population of 40 million versus Finland, where there's 40,000 jobs on offer in terms of a population of 5 million. And that's a reality. And unless you deal with that reality, then you are kind of kidding yourself. That doesn't mean that the, you know, the medium to long term is optimistic and useful, but actually you have to, you have to be able to, in a sense, understand where you are, but have that, you know, kind of ability to tell the story and take things forward. And I think just on the point around the jobs on offer, right, I think there's also differences in the roles that tech startups play towards creating those net new jobs versus SMEs who form within sort of the real economy sector, such as manufacturing, etc. How do you think about the, distinguish, the distinction between small businesses or SMEs and startups themselves? And what do we need to be doing more of or less of to better articulate that difference? I think SMEs are, are very much traditional businesses. And, you know, Africa 
if, if you're not an individual and, you know, there's sort of two or three of you are an SME, then it's quite often a family business and it, its growth potential tends to be quite low, whereas actually what you look for in a startup is some dramatic growth or, and that, that growth may not necessarily be jobs, but certainly financial growth over a period of time. I think the more sobering thing is I quote a statistic in the book that was given to me, which is in Senegal, there's something like 260,000 young people coming out of school, university and places like that. So that's nearly a quarter of a million people. And of those, only 30,000 every year are likely to be employed. And I think the difficulty for start African startups at the moment is they're in the phase where actually the average, you know, if you're if you're lucky, 10 people will be employed by the startup. But I think it, it, it so you can't, in a sense, invest too much in the story that actually this will be the solution to new jobs for Africa. But I think there's two other points that need to be made. Actually, startups are important because they have an energy and dynamic, and the people involved with them are young, and they are involved in innovation. So they challenge the economy, and they challenge the society. I think secondly, also too, they are involved in that transition that is happening in the society. And I hate, I hate the phrase, but digital transformation, I can't think of a sort of a better phrase at the moment. They are involved and are on the front line of that particular change. And therefore, they are important for that reason as well. So it may not be the job numbers. It may be those two other things. Yeah, fully, fully agree with that, Russell. One of the other topics that you cover is the concept of M&A or, or inorganic growth, and you've given specific examples of, of how that can come together even within a startup environment. Do you think we need to see more consolidation and perhaps do more to facilitate more inorganic growth? Or should we be taking the opposite approach and creating platforms for more decentralized approaches to challenging the status quo across different value chains? We talk rather easily about Africa and you know, this book is about sub-Saharan Africa, so it's a, it's a separate piece of that con huge continent. The numbers of countries is staggering. So the challenge for any startup is to be in a market that's big enough to succeed in and then to start expanding into other countries. Otherwise, what you have is a kind of fragmentation. Now, the difficulty is how do you do that in a continent where the distances are so huge and the cultures are so different and therefore, how do you get to a position where actually you're not just addressing the Kenyan market, but you're addressing, I don't know, Kenyan, South African, Nigerian, Ghanaian simultaneously? And that's the challenge over and over again. And I think that one of the difficulties is that, you know, I, I'll, I'll take Nigerian culture. There is, there, it's quite an ego-driven culture, which does mean it makes it quite hard to be in a position where people will cooperate with each other or will join together to address common problems. And that may be the precursor to having a merger or the precursor to some form of consolidation, but it makes it hard if actually every sentence starts with, well, I, I know best implicitly. So I think those those are some of the problems. Cool. Russell, I mean, the book has so many incredible insights for the founders that are listening to this, that get their hands on this book. What do you hope they take away from your book? I think there's the, the thing I was saying earlier, which is is they shouldn't be any the less enthusiastic 
But actually, if you can if you can look at the circumstances you're in, and you can understand the circumstances you're in, and you can think your way through and out of those difficulties, I think a lot of founders have sought to create startups that address consumer markets, user markets. So you know, individuals, you know, like the the Uber and the Jumias of of this world, and. I think one of the challenges, one of the more interesting challenges, let alone fintech, is actually all the B2B stuff. So in the book, I provide a very brief description of a, of a startup called Trade Depot, which looks at trying to make visible all the informal retail activity that happens within a particular country. And I give another example, and again, not at any great length, which is Twiga Foods, which is focused on, if you will, the, the logistics of food and getting that food to informal retailers. So I think those kind of sort of big problems, which are about, in a sense, making efficiencies and creating new opportunities, I think those are as important as, as the shiny things, you know, the, the kind of things that Eric Hersman of iHub called scratching fleas versus lion-sized problems, where, you know, kind of the temptation is always to set up a kind of meal delivery service, whereas a meal delivery service is great for the middle classes, but actually doesn't do much for anybody else. I think the striking thing about one of the continent's most successful startup services, M-Pesa, was it successfully brought together the middle classes with those, the Wenanchi, as they're called in Kenya, the, the people, the people who had mm. less money. So actually what you've got is an ecosystem in which those with money quite often will pay their drivers or their maid or their, you know, whoever. And so you have a, a system which is accessible and has larger numbers in it simply than middle class consumers. Russell, I just want to come back to something you touched on earlier when you spoke about the difference between technological change and behavioral change or, or adoption. And I think this is something that's really, really important within the sub-Saharan African context. I want to focus on a couple of behavioral challenges that we experience in our market and just get your take on building a value proposition to, to challenge or change behavior over time. We have all of these behavioral challenges that we need to sort of get over in order to drive adoption of innovation. How do you see that playing out over the next decade, let's say? And, and, and do you think there's a role to play in, in helping to change that behavior more efficiently? I think it's kind of interesting. If we take the example of farmers, what the development sector has tried to do in creating a different kinds of sort of impact startups, if you will, is to say, here is a set of people who will be sold on a proposition like, a, I don't know, market pricing or agricultural information to help you grow crops better or whatever. And you're using technology to address them. And actually, this is a group of people who quite often are quite elderly. Often they are, they are not the most literate or well-educated, and that tends to be a defining factor in terms of behavior change and technology use. And, you know, there's a, there's a guy in the book who says, you know, what, what do I want with, you know, this kind of agri-tech stuff? It's me, my hoe and the soil, you know, how come, you know, what's technology got to do with that? But, and so that, that has been going for 20 years. And, and, you know, in the development chapter in the book, I examine that history 
And in fact, really, it's only beginning to to happen now in the agri-tech sector. And then even not, you know, with, with many, many, many sort of false steps. I think the big change that's coming is that if you look at Africa, Africa is a young continent, and many of those who are in the kind of 18 to 25 bracket are what you would call digital natives. So in other words, they're quite comfortable. They're not probably not as well-informed as you might find, say, in a European market or in America, but they are much, much more informed about the technology. They feel comfortable with it. They may feel slightly frightened by using too much of it because of the cost of data, but that's a separate question. So these are Africa's digital natives. Now, if you imagine going forward 10, 15 years, then actually these people will be in power. These will be people who are in positions of power in business, probably in politics and so on and so forth. Um, and I think it's, it's striking that Africa's politicians are all relatively elderly and not terribly technically sophisticated. They are advised quite often and helped towards it, but, but in themselves, they're not. So if you imagine you had a 40-year-old a African leader who already knew what TikTok was, even before he or she was, in, was voted into power, you can imagine that different possibilities might flow from that. And there's a, a quote in the book that Daria Kujo of MFS Africa, which is one of the one of the great startups of the continent, says, you know, kind of if you imagine what it's what it was like, you know, if you talked about the potential woman customer, it used to be somebody walking along a road with two types of firewood on her head. Nowadays, it's uh, it's a woman who's in an urban area who is interested in football, who has a smartphone. You know, it's all of those things now. You can interrogate some of that and be critical of some of that, but I think that is the big change that will occur. The digital natives will climb the, 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 the demographic ladder and actually then, then the magic happens. So, Russell, suppose we zoom out and, and look at the changes in Africa's communication over the last three decades. What role has consumer behavior and culture shift played in driving or influencing that change? I think a very big role because I think, and, and this is why it has taken several decades to actually get to where it is. I remember having a conversation with somebody who was quite senior in IT policy in Kenya. And he was saying, well, you know, my family, when I go on social media, they think this is this is a bad thing, you know, kind of I'm boasting about myself. Why should I be doing this? Shouldn't shouldn't you just shut up and, you know, not say anything? And that was a position in maybe 2010. And now if you go back to Kenya, I think the biggest number of WhatsApp groups is family WhatsApp groups. And so a change has happened there. It has fitted into the social pattern. And I always give the example of Facebook because though I'm not a big fan of Facebook, you have to say its growth in Africa is, is extremely impressive. And nobody needed to run capacity building workshops. Nobody needed to do experiential marketing. Actually, it fitted into the culture of socializing and getting information in a way that was very African. It was almost as if you had like two or three mobile phones attached to your, to your belt and you were making these conversations with all sorts of people in real time. And so I think the thing to look at is actually how can you go with the grain of the culture and then slowly take it round the corner? Because actually 
you do need to change behaviors. Africa, I, w I always used to say, and I've stopped saying it now, but it, Africa is like everywhere else, but is so very different. And if you understand me by that, at some stage in Africa, there will be fiber to the home will be a big thing. But at the moment, it's actually relatively small and fiber to the home is a big thing everywhere else. But actually, the getting there has to deal with the realities of Africa's difference. And Africa needs to ensure that it stays with its difference because it is the difference that, that actually makes it something different from all the sort of generica of global culture. And so, you know, the, the Afrobeats, the Nollywood, all of those, all of those things, technology can amplify, technology can bring to the, the notice of the world. And to have a day when Nollywood films and Afrobeats and all of the cultures of Africa are as well known around the world as, uh, I don't know, American TV series or, or UK TV series would, would be um, a, a great victory. You, you can't leave I'm a Piano out of that, uh, out of that list. R Russell, just to pick up on, on one of the points you made, I, I think if I just look at the, the Facebook example, yes, has picked up and didn't require any training. And I think what we're also seeing is the social element translating so fluidly into business models such as marketplaces. So you look at Facebook marketplaces in, in different parts of the continent and how that's enabled trade so, so organically and so fluidly. And, you know, I think we, we see something similar happening more recently when it comes to adoption rates of cryptocurrency, where you've got this confluence of factors that just lend itself quite nicely to organic adoption. And as you say, I think as the digital adoption picks up over the next 10 to 20 years, we're going to see a lot more of that. So fully, fully agree. I think the key moment for me was having spent hours and hours in the back of cars driving around African cities. When I started, the driver would always ring a friend. You know, when I said I need to go to X and he didn't know where it was, he'd always ring a friend. And... I was in Nairobi in, I think it was 2012, and the guy said, oh, let me look at Google Maps. And you begin to see at that moment the transition to something else, a kind of substitution of one thing for another. And I think those are the moments to look for. Russell, thanks so much for joining us on today's show and sharing your insights with us. For those who are excited by the snippet of what we discussed, how do they get a hold of the full copy of the book? The book is available from Manchester University Press. If you Google Africa 2.0 and Manchester University Press, you'll find yourself on a page that will allow you to order the book. Or you can order it on Amazon. Thank you. And of course, a big thank you to everyone who's been listening and hanging out with us today. If there's anything you heard on today's episode that got you thinking, we'd love to hear what's on your mind. So please do ping us on African Precede Podcast. That's hashtag African Precede Podcast. Or email us at hello at AfricanPreseed.com. Cool. Thank you, Russell. Good conversation. Good to talk to you. All right, then. And that's it for now. So catch you on the next one.